Hello everyone, and welcome back to Around Serie A in 20 Days, the podcast. I am, as always, your host, Michael Nimmel, and follow me for the next 20 minutes or so as I recant to you my exciting journey to watch Parma. If you enjoy what you hear or have heard me before, then you know what I'm going to say next. Please go to www.michaelnimmo.com, that's my website, and from there you can subscribe to the podcast, or you can buy the book, or you can read the blog, or you can... Well, that's about it, really, from my website for now. Alternatively, if you're listening on iTunes and you haven't subscribed, please subscribe, and then you can also rate and review it. It would take kind of like five seconds of your time, and I would be super appreciative. The more people who rate and review the podcast, the happier I am. Thank you very much for your time, and enjoy as I return to Emilia-Romagna. Match 4. A day with Ibu Kali. My trip to watch Parma play Milan. A few weeks after my last sojourn to Bologna and following a restorative holiday, match number four of my Italian football odyssey saw me returning to Emilia-Romagna. Setting off on the Saturday lunchtime, I was bright-eyed, bushy-tailed and looking forward to getting back into the swing of things, as the coming week would see me watching three matches and travelling umpteen kilometres. Living in Genoa can be a bit of a pain in the posterior, forgetting to cities that aren't Milan, Turin, Pisa or Rome. Sadly, Parma falls into the category of being not one of those cities, so it took me a while to get there. My enthusiasm for getting back in the road quickly fell out of the window and tumbled along the side of the track like a discarded cigarette, as despite this marking only the 20% point of teams visited, my desire to spend time and money on Trenitalia's services was already almost exhausted. Still, I could be spending my time and money on more trivial matters. What's that, you say? A book about Italian football isn't going to add to the cultural canon of our times? Oh, well, yes, you're, you're probably right. Keep it to yourself, though. But anyway, following the tension of Bologna, I was quite happy to go to Parma, as the fans there have a reputation of being less intense in their supporting than most other teams, so the visit of Milan would hopefully offer the chance to watch a good game without any concerns over my personal safety. If you're nodding your head at the mention of Parma, there's a chance you've heard of it because of its reputation for food, and not so much for its football, although I will get to that soon enough. It is, of course, where some of the finest prosciutto and parmesan cheese comes from, and the locals are referred to as parmigiani. Parmesan is parmigiano in Italian. But don't worry, I won't be making any hammy jokes about the cheese. Much like the rest of Italy, the city of Parma has had more owners down through the years than a £5 note. It, like Bologna from last time, is in Emilia-Romagna, so while the local political sentiment is nominally left-leaning, I saw a lot of well-heeled folk out and about in their early Saturday evening best. I may be gravely wrong-headed in my thinking, but I always associate lefties as being a bit frugal and drab when it comes to their clothing. Not that those who lean more to the right are paragons of style mind. This may be based on my experience of university lectures, who are of course all raging socialists by default, though that isn't necessarily such a bad thing in my eyes. But anyway, I'd thought about having a nice wee aperitivo in a piazza, but felt like a bit of a scruff. Instead, I strolled round the very picturesque centre of town, 
which is full of cultural stuff to do, if that's your bag. In terms of local famous faces, the most notable is Giuseppe Verdi for all you classical music buffs. Annoyingly, some teams put tickets on sale online for the cheaper seats, while others don't. Parma don't. So, in the days running up to the match, I was faced with the no-brainer of either spending €120 for a ticket in the nicer stands and rolling up on the day, or going to Parma on the Saturday, buying a cheap ticket and staying in a hotel. The latter was the only real choice on a matter of principle and also finance. There's no way in hell that I'm going to spend more than €100 on a ticket for a team I don't support. Scratch that, in fact. There's no way I'm going to spend more than €100 on any team. Football's great, but there is a line that I will not cross, a line which is demarcated with images of me being kicked out of my flat for non-payment of rent. So, an evening in Parma and a hotel it was to be. After a sticky wander round the humidity-cloaked centre, I headed back to rest my weary head on a pillow. Small world that it is, though, I met an American student in the bar who also lived in Genoa, had, evidently, come to Parma for the weekend, and had even been in Amsterdam at the same time as me a couple of weeks previous. My mind boggling with the extent that the NSA will go to keep tabs on people, I went to bed for some sleep. Sleep was not to be had, however, as I was woken up by what seemed to be the filming of a porno by some of my neighbours. It was deeply unpleasant, and continued for a begrudgingly enviable amount of time. I guess this is what you get for booking the cheapest hotel you can find. It was all in all about as arousing as catching yourself in your fly. At some point, the woman could be heard saying, Dai amore! I couldn't have put it better myself. The next morning, after giving dagger-filled looks at any couple that came into the breakfast room, I headed off to Bargiani, a sure spot I'd been told to find some Parmigiani to interview. On the way, I got some very sad news about the untimely demise of my parents' kitten, which somewhat cast a pall over the rest of the afternoon. Even though I only saw him for a few weeks in the summer, I operate by the way of thinking that's what theirs is mine, despite them stubbornly refusing to acknowledge the other half of the bargain and accepting my student debt. But anyway, I was on a mission to drink some beer and chat to some locals, so that's what I was going to do. Now, I don't want to blow my own trumpet, but I consider drinking beer to be one of my strengths. Speaking to strangers, on the other hand, is not. Whether it's because of my being British and not wanting to bother other people, or just because I'm too shy, I find this the most onerous part of these trips, even more unpleasant than the toilets on trains. When I got to the bar, it was disappointingly quiet. There were precious few people, and none of the songs and manly stenches that I associate with a supporters pub on match days. While hanging about and trying not to look too conspicuous, I consoled myself with a pint. It started to fill up about half an hour before kickoff, just as my second pint was getting perilously empty. But as I observed, most of the arrivals were simply using the bar as a meeting point and weren't hanging about long enough for me to pester them. So, with a clouded mind after another pint, I set off to the stadium under a clear, bright sky. Parma FC were founded late in 1913, meaning my trip fell just shy of their centenary. I'm sure, had they known that I'd be around, they'd have moved the founding date a couple of months forward to accommodate me. 
Set up before the compound noun of the sport we all know and love became commonplace, Verdi Football Club, as they were known at the time, have played in the Stadio Ennio Tardini since 1923. Their colours are yellow and blue, which leads to the rather obvious nickname of Igialo Blue. Come on Italians, think of more imaginative nicknames please. They also respond to Iducali, the douchey men, I Crociati, the Crusaders, thanks to the cross on their shirts, or they again, fairly straightforward when you consider where they're from, gli Emiliani, the Emilians. Up until the 1990s, they hadn't really pulled up any trees, but then arrived millions of litres of milk money to strengthen their bones and add a bit of weight to their pockets and squad. Under the ownership of Parmalat, a company grown big and healthy on dairy products, Parma were able to match the traditional heavy hitters on the pitch. In that period, they had players of the ilk of Hernan Crespo, Gianluigi Buffon, Gianfranco Zola, Faustino Aspriglia, and Lilian Turam. With these players, they won the Coppa Italia three times, finished as runners-up in the league, won the UEFA Cup twice, and the European Cup Winners' Cup once. Never once did they manage to win the Scudetto, though, making them a peculiarity and a pub quiz answer in the waiting, given their successes in Europe. I asked Enrico, an interviewee I'd found, if he would swap one of these trophies for the Scudetto, and he said that he could live without the 1998-99 UEFA Cup in exchange for getting a wee Italian shield badge sewn onto the strip, this being the mark, quite literally, of champions. But, just as a house built on sand will eventually crumble, Parmalat's milky foundations drowned in financial scandal when their somewhat creative accounting was discovered, thus sinking the club into administration and insolvency. At the time of my visit, they still had some relatively big names, like Antonio Cassano and Amaury, but none of the calibre of the cream of the crop from the 1990s, early 2000s. When I asked Enrico who had been his favourite player, he answered without much hesitation or thought, Crespo. Hernan Crespo had two spells at Parma, as well as at Juventus, Inter and Chelsea, among others. First time round, despite having a rocky start and not scoring in his first six months, he would later go on to enchant the supporters, becoming the record goalscorer and also the most expensive player in the world when he left to go to Lazio in 2000. As previously mentioned, Parma play at the Stadio Ennio Tardini, a fair to middling-sized stadium that benefits hugely from being without a running track. Although many of you who are reading may take being able to see the sweat rising from a player as he runs over to take a corner for granted, in the running track cluttered Stadio of Italy, this is a lost luxury. Happily, at the Tardini this isn't an issue, and adds a sense of connection to events out on the pitch, as the players fluff chances, feign injury and fall over just yards away from the fans. As I made my way to my seat in the Corva, used for sitting on here too, who'd have thought it? I was pleased to see a pretty full stadium, except for the opposite end, which had some fairly exaggerated segregating of the visiting Milanisti. I was sat near the corner flag, and off to my left, directly behind the goalposts, seemed to be the most vocal supporters section. Enrico seemed to think that their numbers had fallen in recent years. This bureaucracy would seem to work against what he felt was the true meaning of fandom. 
Logically, if going to the stadium or to away games is made more difficult or less appealing, the traditional supporter base will be diluted. Whether or not this is good or bad is a matter of opinion. Personally speaking, I've never had a problem with the Tessera del Tifoso. This is kind of like the supporter's ID card proposed by Margaret Thatcher in the 80s, although we'll look at it in greater detail later on. In fact, I've had one since 2010. Although it did require some form filling, I wanted to go to the stadium more than I didn't want to complete the form. That said, I can understand why some people wouldn't want to comply after years of it not being necessary. The ultras group in Parma is called Boys Parma 1977. It's those who were making all the noise on my left, and they're the only group in the Curva Nord. Ever since the introduction of the Tessera del Tifoso, they've resisted signing up to it, instead buying individual tickets or a voucher, equivalent to a season ticket but without the need of the Tessera del Tifoso. Some members, wanting to go on away trips, were told by the club that they'd need a Tessera to buy tickets for the visitors' end, and to get the Tessera, they'd need to buy a season ticket. Since they, as ultras, were already ever-present at the Tardini, this basically blocked them from following I Crociati on the road. This state of affairs, understandably, didn't go down too well, and after asking at the start of August for a means to go on away trips without the Tessera, the self-explanatorily titled Away Card, at the time of my visit they were still waiting. They would eventually get the go-ahead in January 2014. The away card, like the voucher for home matches, was a compromise from clubs on behalf of those who wanted to go to Stadia without joining the Tessera scheme. As reported on the fan-orientated website sportspeople.net, the boys Parma referred to the away card as being The game itself was very entertaining. Parma shot into a 2-0 lead in the first half, clouding and crowding out the stars of Milan. The boys, behind the goal, made as much of a racket as possible, led of course by the obligatory t-shirtless chorus leader, who gesticulated wildly for louder, 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 while standing on the fence separating the stand and the pitch. They also had a snazzy line of line rampant flags, which appealed to the patriot in me. The second half saw more threatening from Parma, and until the 60th minute, you could have been forgiven for thinking that the elite team, who only five days before had drawn with Barcelona in a Champions League match, had been the home team. On the hour though, Milan grabbed a couple of goals in as many minutes, and it seemed that a match which Parma had bossed would end up as a draw. These goals sparked an outpouring of jubilation, both from the official Milan stand behind the far goal, and also from pockets of Milanisti in the main stand. There's something quite irritating about this in my opinion. If you're going to a stadium to support a team, make sure you're at least in the right stand. Failing that, don't jump up and down celebrating 
while the world crumbles for those who are sitting around you. Or, in other words, and this can be applied as a general rule in life, don't be a dick. About 10 minutes before the end, Ignazio Abate, the Milan defender, was very lucky not to be sent off, seeing as he was the last man and cynically fouled the attacker who was streaking through on goal, but just to be clear, was fully clothed. His yellow card was derided by the home faithful with Siete come la Juve, you're just like Juventus, i.e. no red card just because you're the big team and whisper it, but you might not be entirely honest. This is of course a universally popular shout. One rule for the big teams, one for the smaller. This would be pretty difficult to prove in most countries, as referees have to make split-second judgments at speed, and then aren't obliged to publicly explain their reasoning afterwards. As they make these decisions in heartbeats, it's perhaps no surprise that they get them wrong sometimes, and undoubtedly the atmosphere of an enormous dome, or even being awestruck by officiating football superstars, playing to the popular defence of refs are only human after all, may contribute to decisions being shaded in one team's favour or another. But, of course, in Italy, there's documented proof that clubs or their officials have tried to influence a referee's thinking. In 1999, the top referees in the peninsula were sent Rolexes for Christmas by the then Roma president, while Juventus were demoted and several other clubs punished for their role in the Calciopoli scandal and had two championships stripped from them which they refused to acknowledge, and instead thrust their pointy fingers of blame at Inter, who they claim framed them. Then, every week, there's an intense dissection of every borderline refereeing decision by TV pundits from the final whistle on a Sunday to the kick-off of the following week. With a fine-tooth comb, they replay all the significant incidents, with replays of the moment of contact, or lack of it, repeated so many times that the foot in, foot out, foot in, foot out, starts to take on the appearance of the hokey cokey. Although teams often win on their own merits, managers rarely lament their team's loss because of their faults or deficiencies. If only the referee had whistled for the foul, throw-in, penalty, offside, delete as applicable. This is fairly understandable self-preservation. Not wanting to accept your or your charge's failures, and so shifting the blame onto the man or dark forces, often seems to be the easiest path to take. You could be forgiven for thinking that if it weren't for those scurrilous butchers in black, the princely men on the pitch would play a fair and honest match, before walking back to the changing rooms congratulating each other on what jolly good sports they all were. But of course, the instances of match-fixing by players are also well documented and depressingly lengthy. Not to mention the kicking, pushing and faking, which is now part and parcel of the behaviour of these often cited role models. Back out on the pitch, any grudging accusations of favouritism or cheating were extinguished, and the supporters' anger was turned to ecstasy when with pretty much the last kick of the ball, Marco Parolo blasted in a free kick to make it 3-2 and a victory for Parma. As the fans around me went crazy, I thanked my decision to wait until the final whistle before going to the by now much-needed toilet, then packed up my spotted handkerchief and headed home for a sleep. About ten minutes before the end, Ignat About ten minutes before the end, Ignazio Abate, the Milan defender, the Milan defender, was very lucky not. Mm, I'm fucking impossible to think.